So this was probably the best and worst week of my, no, not of my life, over well, the past 15 months. You know, my twin babies were born 15 months ago. I have not slept since, that's an understatement, you know. We reached the point of, of literal exhaustion. Now, this week I took the first plane since COVID. I had a gig in Brussels, which was so big that we decided together, my husband and I, that, you know, I'm going. It was also something that involved him. He wanted me to go, but it was a big deal. It's the first time since the, my boys were born that I was away for three nights in a row. And then what happens? I come back to Brussels and I cannot go home. My taxi literally brought me to, my, to our house and on the way, I'm texting Greg, my husband, and I'm telling him, listen, someone I met for lunch with yesterday just told me that he was a contact. Uh, he was in contact with someone who was confirmed. So he was only going to get tested today, and he's waiting for results. I anyway needed to get tested on the way back from Belgium because it's considered by the Germans as uh, Brussels is a red region. But I was expecting to do my quarantine at home. And now Greg is saying, listen, if you're positive, I don't want you around here because all four of us will be home for two weeks. There will be no daycare and all of us will be here and we will not even be able to have the nanny helping us. So you get away from us, get your negative result and then come back. So he basically sent the nanny down with a bag for me full of fresh clothes and very cute, I have to say, uh, pictures of the boys I have with me in my hotel room, even the new one that I had not seen. And, and booked me a hotel room almost across the street, but I'm not allowed to see them other than on Zoom. I mean, how did you reach that that point? So I had another night of good sleep. Ah, so this was my, my introduction. This is why you see a hotel room around me right now, <laughs> because I'm five minutes away from home, throwing money I could use for other things in a hotel instead of being with my husband and my kids after three nights away. What up? How are you? I'm, I'm really well. <laughs> Been, it's been an intense couple of years for us both. both yeah, people. you look good, you look fresh. You don't look like a young mother. Uh, uh, well, you know that Zoom can enhance <laughs> you a little bit. I, I, you know, I'm not I'm not afraid of doing that at this time in the morning. <laughs> I, I, just, I just dial up the enhancement just a little bit so I don't have to put on any eyes. It's true, I forgot about that feature of, of uh, wait a second, we're starting all over again now. <laughs> We're young parents and you know we are doing our best to survive on zero sleep i am with you i think we look great you know age <laughs> suits us stress suits us cortisol through our veins looks you know great on us so don't worry i'm podcasting from the kitchen in my uh, little cottage in sterling i love it here it's a beautiful place to live, but I'm, I'm a tiny bit jealous because you are literally in my like favorite city in the entire world. And I'm, I'm wondering what it's been like for you, what the transition from, from Brussels to Berlin has been like. So Berlin is very cool, but I have to say I'm experiencing it, experiencing it so differently. So I was here 10 years ago as a student for about just over one year and I fell in love with it. And I've been talking to my, a man who became my husband years later, how great it was. And we used to come here for on holidays from time to time until we reached the point of actually packing ourselves and moving here. But now with twins at home and a, and a global pandemic, I have to say that, you know, my friends think that I'm partying in Bergen every night and I'm, you know, enjoying Berlin. So first newsflash, Bergen is closed since who knows how long. And second, you give me five minutes, I go to sleep. I don't go to exhibitions. I don't go to clubs. I don't go to parties. I just want sleep. 
Now I'm still enjoying it. It's still a very hip and cool city. I would say very uh, baby friendly, very gay friendly, very green. So I mean, these were all the reasons why we picked it. Lots of tech happening here. So no, no, it's a it's a great place to uh, to be in. And and it's funny how you mentioned that we we both knew each other and we got to know each other in Brussels. Maybe it's worth mentioning how you know I was thinking when you invited me on your podcast. It wasn't so many years ago that we met for lunch just outside the headquarters of the Commission in Berlin. We're both young, ambitious, you know, uh, professionals trying to take over Brussels and we both landed dream jobs, let's admit it. We were both speechwriters for commissioners. You were one of those uh, uh, mavericks that everyone was talking about, this uh, speechwriter of, uh, of uh, Commissioner Moedas. And I'd actually seen you on stage a few years before when you introduced uh, Barack Obama. So, I mean, I, I, I knew I wanted to go for lunch with you because you were like, you know, ticking all these boxes. And I was like, who is this woman and how is she doing that? I need to figure out whatever she's doing, she's doing right. But still, you know, our priorities and our lives were so different that it wasn't so long ago. And meanwhile, both of us moved away in the EU. Unfortunately, you were moving in the EU, but the EU was reducing its size uh, and you're no longer in the EU. But um, yeah, look at us now. I mean, since then, we got in touch in the past few months and we're exchanging tips about uh, tantrums of babies and how to uh, mix uh, or balance career life and family lives. I guess it's a normal development, you know, we're in the right age, but it's just, you know, if someone had told us back then when we first met for lunch, I think it would have been hard for me to believe, especially in our cases, two men having babies where everything is much more complicated, but, but yeah. So, but to go back, sorry, to your question, Berlin is wonderful. It, it's definitely, uh, I mean, especially now COVID times, you know, I was saying that I don't take, enjoy it as much as I would have if it weren't for the pandemic. But at the same time, I just came back from Brussels. As I said, it's the first plane I took since the, the pandemic started. And it's just amazing to see how much Berlin is functioning better than almost anywhere else around the world. We don't, we don't wear masks around here on the street. Just, you know, arriving in Brussels, that's the first thing that struck me. I knew it, huh? but visually. I had not experienced until now what it's like to spend most of your day behind a mask and not having you know, free oxygen coming through your, your lungs. So, I mean, there's something about this place where they manage to more or less keep the economy going and without too many restrictions. At the same time, the numbers are low. I guess the trade-off is the fact that they're getting stricter and stricter on the borders and they're really checking people coming in. So me coming back from Belgium, now I had to test myself and wait for the results and hopefully go back to my normal life. But uh, until then, I'm supposed to quarantine. And as of next month, it's going to be even more difficult because you, they would expect you to quarantine anyway for five days and only then test yourself. So yeah, I guess we will really stay where we are because traveling is going to become really impossible. Are you looking forward to traveling with your boys in the future when it's possible? What's it been like in your situation getting passports and things for them? Um, how is that going to work with your family? And if you don't, if you don't want to talk about stuff like this, we'll just bypass it and I'll ask another question. But um, it's no, just no, um, as you might have noticed, I mean, we are very uh, meditized about our uh, family because we think it's, it's a bit strange because on the one hand, it's the most intimate thing. You know, it's my own children. And at the second time, you recognize that there's an opportunity to raise awareness on an issue and a cause that is so dear to, to our hearts is, is raising awareness to same sex uh, families. And it's even an obligation I feel I have now to prepare as much as I can, uh, not only my boys to the reality around them, but to some extent the reality around them to, to, to them, to the fact that they have two, two fathers. And that's why we've been always having this dilemma to which extent we're exposing ourselves, but we've been doing quite a bit of that. Um, well, you asked a few very different questions. Do I miss traveling? Yes. 
I'll be honest and say that it, I've been a bit reluctant or hesitant about traveling with them because they're young. So even before the pandemic broke, I kept postponing it because it's quite stressful to travel with twin babies. Um, so it, it's strange. They've never been to Israel where I grew up. They've never met their first cousins. Um, we were going to do it in spring and then we're going to do it in summer and then we're going to do it in fall. And the pandemic keeps uh, catching up, uh, you know, is, is extending, not catching up. It's, it's, it's still, we're not seeing an end to when we could actually travel. Israel just went into a second full lockdown. So there's no way of going there anywhere anytime soon. Um, but yeah, once they are ready and it's a bit less complicated to travel with the twins, I would love to, uh, we actually have a fantasy of taking them, uh, that maybe that, that would combine both your questions. A, a tour around the world that brings together all the, the countries that have to do with the way they came into the world. Because, <coughs> excuse me, so we, for different technical reasons, gave the sperm in Israel in Tel Aviv. The egg donor, who's semi-anonymous, we could speak with her and see her pictures, but without knowing her name and identity, she is from South Africa, from Cape Town. And for different, also financial and logistic reasons, we use the clinic in New Delhi. So the egg donor, the anonymous egg donor, after we agreed with her, traveled from, New, from Cape Town to New Delhi to go through the procedure of giving her, uh, her eggs. And our sperm was sent from Tel Aviv to New Delhi. That's where they met. And that's where the, the embryos were fertilized. Once that went fine, she went back to her normal life. And the embryos were shipped from New Delhi to Los Angeles. That's where there was another specialist of uh, fertility treatments of this uh, kind, um, Dr. Kumar. And so he took care of the embryos of planting them in the womb of the other woman, the surrogate. That's something that we always also emphasize that it's not the same woman. The, the woman who carried them in her womb is not the biological mother. She has no legal, no biological and no intentional uh, uh, intentions to keep them as her children. So there's this misconception of gay men coming and tearing away kids from their mothers so that they have their own gadgets. It's very different than this horrendous idea. It's more of a very, very altruistic woman who was willing to carry children who are not hers so that we can have family. But to go back to the story, so she's from the East Coast of the US, from the state of Georgia. So she had to travel from Georgia to LA um, to be planted with uh, the embryos and then also went back to her normal life. That's where she spent the whole pregnancy and that's where she, she delivered them and they, they were born. So that's why my green husband always says that they will have to plant trees all their lives because the CO2 emissions of these two before they were even born is quite high. Um, so yeah, maybe doing this tour around the world is not the best idea for offsetting their carbon footprint. But, um, but given that with a surrogate, we have a very warm relationship. She agreed to become the godmother and she was supposed to actually come for the first uh, birthday in Europe, which is a big deal for her because she'd never been, she'd never traveled before. So she wanted to come to Europe to see them after, after one year. And the donor agreed in principle that if one day when they grow up, they want to know who she is, she would be willing to, uh, to be contacted by them. So in principle, there is a way of going you know, to all these locations and showing them, not just explaining to them, but showing them all these, these people um, and technologies that made it possible for us to, to have them. But that is not going to happen anytime soon, um, not only because of COVID. I would need to have the time off work for such a trip. I would need to have the budget for such a trip. I would need them to be old enough. And I would prefer not to have, um, yeah, go to through uh, testing and quarantining wherever we go around the world. But it's kind of a, an idea we keep um, in the drawer for one day when they're 
when they're old enough and the world is uh, a bit more uh, stable. And hopefully by then there will also be electric flights and we will not be uh, polluting while we're traveling. Tell me what it was like growing up in Israel and how did your life take you from Israel to, to working for a vice president of the European Commission? I mean, that must be some story. So I grew up in Israel, but it's actually the West Bank. So what some would consider uh, biblical, historical Israel, um, some would consider to be occupied uh, Palestine, um, very controversial, maybe the most controversial region in the world, um, which I kind of took for granted and didn't ask myself too many questions about it when I grew up, because that was the only thing I knew, the settlement, or some in some languages it's called colony. Um, it took me quite some time to start asking myself questions about what's happening around me and understanding that having um, barbed wire around the, the village is not something that every person has. I mean, to be honest, as a child, it was a very, it was a wonderful environment, you know. Doors were open, we would run around between the houses, it was safe. Um, even during the Intifada, inside our settlements, it was fairly safe. They were just well protected from the outside. So without understanding the politics around it, it, it was like, you know, we just go and play around. It was fun. When we became teenagers, we started complaining about it because we wanted more of a city life. And then we depended on hitchhiking in the West Bank to the next, to the closest city. And we wanted to, and then it was a bit too quiet. But it was more of the political uh, realization that there was something there that I was disapproving of more and more, um, which pushed me into doing my bachelor degree in Middle Eastern um, studies and political science. So that's when I started learning some Arabic, Islam, politics of, of the Middle East, and of course the Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Arab conflict, um, to the extent that I understood more and more that there was something uh, profoundly wrong with, with the, the Israeli presence in, in the West Bank that I, I was very uncomfortable with. Um, my masters, I decided that I was a bit fed up with the Israeli-Arab conflict and I wanted to look at still politics, but at a global level. So I went, I went to New York and I was uh, doing a master's uh, over there. Well, I started the first year in New York. I ended up doing the second year <coughs> in Berlin. Um, first I took Manhattan, then I took Berlin, as, uh, as Leonard Cohen would say. Um, and then it was, yeah, more of a global, uh, global view on, you know, world affairs. And then I started asking myself what I wanted to do professionally with with my life. I admit it was also in the midst of the 28, 2010 uh, crisis. So it was not easy to get jobs to begin with. And I was, yeah, there was no uh, red carpet as some elite schools was making us believe there would be. Um, so it was a struggle also to find a job, <clears throat> but it was, there was a combination of reasons that pushed me to, to Brussels first to give it a try. But I guess also from an ideological point of view, it started, I started realizing that at least back then I felt like Europe was going in an opposite direction from Israel in the sense that, I, okay, may I say it differently, short uh, political uh, uh, philosophy in, in, in one minute. For me, both Israel and the EU are to a large extent an outcome of the Holocaust and the Second World War. Both the ideas were conceived before, but that was the strongest push for them to actually materialize. And the way I saw it, the, Israel was, saw nationalism as a solution to the Jewish problem. So if we have a nation state, if we have an army, if we have borders, this will never happen again. Nobody will ever try after you know, millennia of anti-Semitism and pogroms and what have you. Now, for the first time since the Second Temple, we'll have our own sovereign state and nobody will be able to mess with us again. 
From the European perspective, it was exactly the opposite. They were saying, no, nation states <clears throat> is what got us in trouble in the first place because, you know, because no, no territory is actually uh, um, ethnically uh, pure, you know, quote unquote. So there will always be a minority. And if you build your political boundaries along the idea of a pure, quote unquote, uh, nation, there will always be another, and the other will always be a problem. And the more babies this other has, the more it's, it jeopardizes our, our project, our, our political system. And that's exactly what's happening in Israel. So those who were the, the, the underdogs who were suffering always by being the other in, in Europe, because they were you know, a thorn in the, in the eye of, of nationalists, because we're supposed to be all the same you know, within the same territory, but they are the Jews. Suddenly the Jews have this problem, because we want to have a Jewish state, which is also democratic. So we need to have a vast majority but there are also Arabs and Palestinians here, and now they're about 20%. So suddenly, even Israel is still a democracy, and they do, I mean, Arabs who are citizens of Israel enjoy relative, uh, um, I would say, high uh, uh, personal liberties, even if it's not far from ideal. I would say it's, it's still a democracy, but this, this concept that it's a Jewish state and anybody who's not Jewish is a burden on the system, that I, I thought was the exact opposite of, of the direction where Europe was going, of breaking the boundaries and breaking this idea of having this pure uh, nation state. But on the contrary, let's mix among our, ourselves, let's diversify as much as we can, and let's build a political system which is not built on ethno-religion. It's not about the color of my skin, it's not about my, my religion, it's about ideas. I was a bit naive, I have to say, because when I moved to Brussels, it was 2011, and I had not heard of people like Gert uh, Wilders in the Netherlands and Marine Le Pen in France, and um, I meanwhile, they're pretty much Orban in Hungary. So it was a bit of a you know, slap in the face a few years after I you know, joined Europe with all this enthusiasm. I wanted to learn European languages, and I wanted to join the, the European institutions, and I wanted to be part of this European integration. And suddenly I see that it's not as, as rosy and pink as, as I saw from, from back in, in Israel because there, it, it is a pendulum and there are those voices that are getting momentum who are calling to go back to those uh, nation states, which in a way made the work of this European integration even more important. So I found myself, so I was very quickly drawn into the realm of communication. I realized when I got to Brussels that that's where my added value was. And I enjoyed, yeah, we can talk about it, doing creative things to make Europeans a bit more sensitive and aware of what, what Europe is. But coming from the outside, I was also much more sensitive to how lucky Europeans were to being citizens of the EU. So I acquired the European citizenship of my ancestors. Uh, the grandfather who fled, he was a Holocaust survivor, he fled and I was able to uh, acquire his Hungarian citizenship. Um, but so I became European relatively late in my life. And then working from the European Commission on communication, telling European citizens what it means to be a European citizen, I, I kind of used my, my own you know, path as, as a means to, to convey to others why it's so important, why they shouldn't take it for granted, why this is you know, such an unprecedented project of, of uh, bringing all these countries together into a, a harmonious uh, system, more or less. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's something that I, found a lot of satisfaction in doing. Um, yeah, at some point also understanding that you work for a very big uh, uh, bureaucratic organization and you don't do whatever you want, you have to still, uh, you know, and, and also it's, it's, it's politics. So, you know, you also see the good and the bad of the politics, you know, there are also political fights between politicians and egos. And, you know, once you're inside, it's not all, 
it's not the same as in academia. It's not just the, the, the philosophy and the ideology. It's also people who are trying to advance their careers. So it's all part of the game. So that also was a bit of, you know, I was a bit disillusioned, but it's normal. It should be this way. Um, so yeah, so that's how I ended up. That's kind of a long answer, I guess, to show a question on, on how I, I went from the, my small settlement in the West Bank, became a European citizen, tried to learn as many European languages as I could, live around and try to understand uh, Europe and then join, uh, join the, the European institutions. Of course, I mean, I jumped uh, lots of steps. I mean, professionally, it wasn't so easy to go from just arriving in Brussels without knowing a thing about the EU to joining the cabinet of the vice president of the commission. Um, but I have to say, if anybody's listening to this and they have that dream of working for the institutions, my experience was that making your first step there is extremely difficult. Nobody's giving you a chance because you need to have that specific know-how of Brussels and it's kind of a vicious cycle. I mean, everybody's expecting you to have experience, but nobody wants to give you your first chance. But once you have that, once you manage to get into the system, I felt that it could be a very quick uh, ascent to having dream jobs. I don't know about your experience, how you ended up working for uh, Commissioner Moedash, but I mean, I had to get my hands dirty and do you know, very badly paid jobs, um, badly treated, not in the institutions, but it, was even, it wasn't even that. It was organizations working for the institutions, and after a few of those, suddenly, you know, I, I kind of got pulled up. Um, and I did that for a while until we both felt, uh, Greg, my husband and I, that we needed change. And then both the European elections of 2019 and the kids were kind of the excuse that now it's time to turn the page. I was there for eight years and to look for something new. And that's when Berlin became, well, after a lot of scratching our heads, where and what, da, 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 we ended up deciding that Berlin was the good compromise we, we were looking for. Of course, not realizing that borders would suddenly become so difficult to cross. Back then it was just a neighbor country and you know, family and friends would just come all the time because as you said, Berlin is so cool and so hip and everybody would just come and see us and suddenly it's more and more difficult to come and see us. But yeah, let's hope that doesn't last for, for too long, this, uh, these difficulties to travel. How did you take the decision to take the leap into freelancing? Because that's something which, it's quite a, a daunting journey. I remember leaving the commission knowing that I, I, I wanted to give it a try. And I remember packing up my boxes and entering the lift in the Berlimont and just wondering if what I was doing was the right thing. How, how did you make that decision? And what, what is it that drove you to say, I can contribute something on my own and this is where I'm gonna channel my energy? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I still have those moments when I'm asking myself as you in the elevator if I, if I did the right thing. Um, it's a couple of things. You touched on some of them. So, I mean, there is that sense that I don't want to spend my home. I mean, most of the people working for the institutions are, you know, there for life. They're functionaries. They went through the competition and they have a job for the rest of their lives. I had this fantasy of every five years having a different life, you know. It's less realistic now with family and kids, but I always felt like, you know, if I'm only going to live once, Okay, so I, I was a religious Jew in the West Bank, been there, done that. I was a speechwriter in Brussels for a vice president, Czech. I was a student in a bunch of places in, in France, in Berlin, in New York. I had that life, okay, Czech. So now I need something new. <laughs> so then, you know, so now I'm in a same-sex relationship with two kids in Berlin. Um, I'm kind of caricaturizing, but yeah, I mean, after doing a bit more of the same in Brussels for a few years, there was that sense of, okay, I've, I need something different. I felt like I reached kind of the glass ceiling of as far as I can get with my own ideas and 
professional approach. You know, I, I managed to push the vice president, I'm very proud of that, of doing things that, that the commissioner typically wouldn't do. We were broadcasting live from an autonomous vehicle, or my last project before I left was bringing Friday for Future activists, teenagers, into an autonomous uh, shuttle. And they were telling the vice president why they think that Europe should do more on climate. And we're broadcasting it live on the main uh, Facebook page of the commission, which has like over a million uh, followers. I was really trying to do things that I thought were not just serving the cause that I was describing before of why Europe is the right, uh, is the right approach, but do it in a creative and a fun way. I did a virtual reality of the launch of EU satellites. It was an amazing mission. I had to go with him with a virtual reality camera and telling citizens, okay, these satellites belong to you. You paid for them with your taxpayers' money. So now let's you know, watch them, the launch with us in an immersive way, either with a mask or with your phone. So each one of these projects was, you know, I loved it. I was completely you know, devoted to it. I had to convince the whole house why I, I knew what I was doing and I, was, I wasn't a liability because they often saw me as, as a risk for their reputation. Um, we also did a live stream when Bertrand Picard, the guy who went around the world in a solo plane. So he was crossing the Atlantic and we were broadcasting with him on why it makes sense for him to go around the world. And, and he's so devoted to, to uh, fighting climate change. And I was mentioning electric, uh, electrified uh, um, planes. So that, that was kind of my, um, or maybe a last one, we were crowdsourcing ideas of youth ahead of the One Planet Summit in Paris. And uh, so we invited them to the studio and they're all connected on their devices and bringing their communities. And instead of them asking the commissioner a question, something that I never liked, this concept of ask the commissioner, they're pitching ideas to the commissioner and the commissioner is asking them questions. He's working for them. So I have this visual of the vice president taking notes. So like kids talking to him saying, we, sh we should do this and we should do that. And he's not the one on the Olympus saying, uh, yeah, I have all the wisdom, but he said, okay, that's a good idea. Okay, I wrote this, I wrote that. And the day after he goes in front of the whole world and he's giving it, handing it the ideas to Macron, to the, for the French president and saying to the international community, this is what youth in Europe is asking me to tell you that we should be doing. I'm kind of their, their messenger. So I was super lucky because he was willing to follow me with these crazy ideas in an institution which was very sensitive to not making mistakes and not to go too far and not to offend anyone. And of course, all these uh, uh, campaigns I just told you about were risky. Uh, something could go wrong. Um, and, and so it was always very, very difficult to convince people to let me go ahead with it. He loved it and he was very good at it. You know, he had the both level of English and charisma that it was working for us. So, so I did those. I did those. I, I felt like I built my little uh, communication agency within the commission. My office looked completely psychedelic. I had, uh, you know, uh, uh, post-its on the walls. Uh, uh, this is my, my pixel art. Like, like a, I tried to, to imagine I'm working for, for a Google or for like a crazy creative agency and put myself in this environment of, you know, I'm the one doing the crazy fun things within an institution that is still slow and heavy and perceived boring and sometimes detached. And I was trying to find these creative ideas of making it relevant and accessible and approachable and all those things. But after a while, you know, I had done it. It was a few years of doing it. I felt a bit tired of fighting sometimes also, because like I said, I was kind of going against the stream the whole time. So, you know, at some point I was just like, you know, I want to do my own thing without having to fight with people all the time that I know what I'm doing. Um, you like my style, you work with me, you don't like my style, you don't work with me. You know, we don't have to, it's not a Catholic marriage, everything is fine. So I had also, I mean, I think here I was also a bit naive in idealizing the life of a freelancer because I thought, you know, I would just sit in hip uh, uh, cafes in uh, Berlin and work on projects that are the coolest and I choose 
And whenever I don't like a, a project, you know, I just discontinue it and I'm a master of my own time and my own uh, resources and everything is fine. But also I kind of miss just having a permanent office and colleagues and people that I see every day and I ask them how their weekend was and I've known them for a while. So now I'm kind of jumping from one thing to the other and it sometimes feels even a bit lonely. So with kids, it was very convenient. You know, I can work from home. I can work from my open space. Nobody's looking at their, their watch when I'm walking into the office. Uh, if I don't have a deadline and the kids need me or I want to stay longer, I can. I guess I'm still looking for a balance between the very structured life I had before, a boss, working hours, office, uh, colleagues, meetings every morning, blah, blah, blah. now being completely free and you know, finding my clients, working with them ad hoc on projects. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'll do it all my life. As I said, I, I'm kind of someone who needs every few years to try something different. My husband gets a heart attack when I say that. He's like, enough, enough of changes. I'm not changing my life every five years. Um, yeah, no, I think I'm doing it now. I think it, it serves me well during this period in my life with, with the young kids. I don't know if in five years, if we have a conversation, I'll still be a freelancer. But I think it's also, it's also okay to go back and forth. I learned a lot just by being an entrepreneur. I had an employee for a few months. I saw what it's like to recruit, what it's like to see if it's working and how to find the right person. And yeah, I mean, things that I, I never had to go through as an employee. So, so I like the idea that uh, and I have my accountant and doing my billing and, and thinking about my, my branding and thinking about registering my trademark and all those things that I never had to do as, a, as an employee. But yeah, we'll see. Huh? <laughs> I'm not signing off uh, this, uh, this deal for the rest of my life. We'll do it as long as it lasts and, and, it's, and it's fun and it's working for everyone. I have one, one final question for you. Probably at the end. Well, you know, you're just such a busy guy. I was just <laughs> okay, um, for the record and for your listeners, you're the one who has a meeting in 20 minutes, not me. I'm in an empty hotel room. <laughs> thinking about my kids two streets away so <laughs> so listeners don't believe her she's the busy lady not me <laughs> oh well i i think we might have to do this again how has being the the father of two boys changed you or your outlook as a person i was a bit naive also to the extent of how much we would have to fight for the rights of these kids i didn't realize it would be so difficult i didn't realize we would have to fight with Greg's employer, the European Parliament, that refused to recognize him as the father of both and refused to give him uh, uh, paid parental leave as women get. I fought with the commission and they ended up giving it to me. And a side note, I would say, we went to the European Ombudswoman and we sued the European Parliament in the EU court because we saw discrimination. That was the first one, but then on a sequence, you know, everywhere we went, then to get, to get them the, the citizenship. And then since they're not European citizens, they're just American for now, to get them the visa for Europe. So at some point, I think that was a realization that it's not just the difficulty of getting them into the world to have two babies uh, when, when we are in a, a same-sex relationship, but the fact that this struggle and this uh, process is going to be their entire lives. Every document, every form we fill where we have to put the mother and the father and I have to cross out one and explain that we are parent one, parent two, um, that occurred to me very late after they were born, that actually were up for a long process or maybe their whole lives, they will, have, they will have to fight. Not only me, I mean, I can take it, but they will have to fight for something that they didn't actually choose. Um, I don't think they are worse off in any way by having two fathers, but I do think that they will suffer in certain ways because of society's look or bureaucratic hurdles. 
And that goes back to the first thing I said in this conversation, maybe, that that, that pushed us to fight and sometimes even paradoxically expose them in order to raise awareness and to try to build empathy to the cause of why the system needs to evolve and recognize other kinds of families so that I don't want them to have to do all these fights in 20 years. I'm trying to advance as much as we can before they reach the point of even understanding that their family is different. But now before they go to bed, we read them stories. So we have a whole bunch of uh, books, literature about uh, alternative families so that they know that they're not the only ones in the world, but they don't even realize yet that they are different. You know, that will come only in a few years. So yeah, that was a bit of a disappointment, I have to say, that, that uh, society, even in Northwestern Europe, is not as ready for same-sex families as they would have wanted to believe. And maybe to go back to where I grew up in, in Israel, it's all over the place. In Israel, gay men in my age group all have children all have children. Here in Europe, when I tell people that we went through surrogacy, people don't even understand what it means. So in terms, and, and I think that's why I was, I, I miscalculated. Uh, uh, I thought that since in Israel, everybody's doing it. It's highly visible, celebrities, anonymous people. I mean, my dad, who's a religious uh, right-wing man, came to me and said, I know this is an option, so why don't you go ahead and have kids? Here in Europe, my partner, whose parents are in Paris, had to explain to them what it is, and the kind of comments they heard around them were very negative. It's kind of a paradox of Israel as a conservative country where family values are so great that even the gay people have to have families. But in the end, I think that's why I was a bit naive. I thought that if over there in Tel Aviv, all the gay, you know, my social circle, they all have kids, then, you know, it should be okay also in Western Europe. What can go wrong? And now I realize that we are pioneers. Now I realize that, you know, when I tell friends in Israel that I'm giving interviews, they're asking me, what about? And I say, yeah, about the fact that we had surrogacy. And say, yeah, what about it? Like, yeah, that we... It's like, okay, what's so special about your case? So you enter surrogacy, so what? Like, they don't even understand because it's so common. And here, when I tell the press, they're like, wow, that's so interesting. So, so two embryos of different fathers in the same womb. So they're twins, but they have brothers. And if people like, you know, I see their jaw dropping. That was a realization that came to me very late. And sometimes it's satisfying to feel like we are pioneers, pioneers in the sense that we are among the first, first generation of men who are doing it. Sometimes I have to say it's a bit heavy. You know, I don't always feel like going to this conversation with random people, but we found ourselves uh, coming out over and over again. First day in daycare, I explained to the nannies the situation. First day of every different place, we have to explain. And still in Berlin, even though it's very baby-friendly and gay-friendly, people, most people have never heard about this before. So whether it's a, you know, an administrative office or, or caregivers, we have to explain it from scratch. Um, and we have to hope that the reaction would be positive. So far, it always has been. But I sometimes wish that there would be a few people before me and that it doesn't all fall on, on us. Um, but okay, it is what it is. I mean, I could not have uh, chosen to be born uh, 15 years later. I hope what I am trying to do is that people in 10, 15 years from now, when they have uh, children through surrogacy, I hope that thanks to our efforts and exposure, they would not have to go through that. that then, then they would reach the point where Israel is right now, that it's like, oh, okay, you're two men with kids. People already understand that if you probably went through surrogacy because you're two men, so you probably have twins because that's what many people do. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my kind of my hope, that the, the, the legal system would be ready, the, the, the legal forms when you fill out would be ready, that at a social level people would be already used to the idea and it would, there would not be so much advocacy for us to, to do. But um, yeah, as I said, it's, uh, it's something that we accepted that it's, it's part of the game and that it's, we are in a position where privilege, I mean, in the end, we are 
white uh, privileged men with good jobs. Um, we have our own network and access to journalists, to politicians. I think we have a responsibility for our own kids first and, and for the cause. And, and we're trying to the extent we can to, to talk about it and, and kind of to push as much as we can. Alone, it's not going to change the world. Huh? But if other people do the same, hopefully at some point, you know, our kids will grow up in a world which is a bit more uh, tolerant and accommodating to, to alternative families. And it's not only about same-sex uh, fathers, by the way. But, you know, there's a whole spectrum of families that don't fall in the traditional definition. And, and I hope and believe that, you know, when you accept us, you accept them as well. And you know, we accept the fact that there isn't just one particular model that works and for all kids and everybody should have that exact model, but there's a bit more... Uh, uh, yeah, there are alternatives that are at least as good and, and we should not judge or, or push people into one particular uh, model. Well, Dan, you're one of the most inspiring people I know, and I mean that genuinely, <laughs> sincerely. I know that at times, you know, your advocacy, well, you know, while you're setting up a new life, um, it, it must be really exhausting. I know there's times where you will wish that it all goes away, but what I also know is that your boys are going to go on to do such amazing things because that example that you're giving them from day one, you know, to, to fight for other people, to do what's right and to stand up for something is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. And so I look forward to seeing them grow and flourish and to find out what they're going to be up to in a, in a few years time. Well, it's... it's it, I, I wish I could have said it face to face. No, but that really touches me. I had, I had a lady in a park, a mother in a park telling me, uh, I told her the story and she said, thank you for fighting because I don't know about my kids' preferences, but your fight will serve them as well. And then I just burst into tears. <laughs> I look forward to, to hearing that you've been reunited with the boy. Hopefully it ends today. Hopefully <laughs> I get the result and I go home and I cross the street and I go home. Fingers crossed for you and fingers crossed uh, that you take over the childcare for a few days. <laughs>